in Faith That Shakes, part 38. We're in Acts 21, and this is part 2. I don't know how far we'll get. Like, I don't want to disappoint you. If you're, like, really trying to mark off Acts 21, I don't think you're going to be able to do that tonight. Uh, because there's some fundamental things that I kind of, like, failed to see last time that we might need to uh, kind of go over, which could take us a little uh, you know, take a little time up. And so uh, I want to say a prayer, but it'll be good. It'll be good. Let me say a prayer. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness and for your word. God, it just inspires us. It teaches us. It. Uh, I pray, God, that you would let it, though, sink from just, you know, information uh, down to revelation, God, from our brains down to our heart, God, to our spirit where it fortifies us and strengthens us as believers, God, to walk uh, very powerfully in this world. And uh, I just pray that you would help that to happen. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say amen. Now, we're going to do some review and some new stuff like we normally do, but I don't want you to think I'm like massively reviewing, but there's some stuff we need to cover. So, are you with me? Here we go, verses 8 and 9. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist. Everybody say, Evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So they went 40 miles south to Caesarea, this team, seven, eight, nine guys, stayed with Philip. He's now distinguished by the ministry office he fills. He's called Philip the Evangelist. We first saw him in Acts 6 where he was handpicked by the 12 to be one of the seven, a deacon that would serve the Greek-speaking widows in the early church there in Jerusalem. These were women who had made the pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Pentecost and then the Holy Spirit was poured out. The church was born. And they unexpectedly ended up staying there longer than they, you know, had planned. They were living there, basically. And so the church was trying to do what it could to take care of all these pilgrims who were there. And they recruited seven Greek-speaking men to serve these widows. And Philip was one of the seven. So was Stephen. So was Nicholas, as we saw, probably the guy that's connected to the Nicolaitans, that Paul would deal with when it came to the church at Ephesus and and Jesus talked about them in Revelation. But let's move on. We saw Philip then in Acts 8 in the city of Samaria where he's preaching and teaching and healing and baptizing. He also ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who was the personal assistant to the Candace or the queen of Ethiopia. And apparently he ministered then along the coast for the next 20, 25 years And settled in Caesarea, married, had kids, including four daughters who prophesied. There are five ministry gifts given to the church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. So check this out. You have Philip, who is an evangelist. He's visited by Paul, who has been known as a prophet and a teacher. And is currently known as an apostle. You have Timothy who is a pastor, and in the same room you have Philip's four daughters who prophesy. 
And so some commentators call them prophets. The New American Standard, Wayman's Translation calls them prophetesses. We don't know if they actually fill that office of a prophet, but we do know that they speak as they are moved upon by the Spirit of God. And they foretell or they foretell, they, they speak either way under the influence, under the anointing. They are women in ministry. And last week, we began building a biblical case for women in ministry or women preachers. And that's where we're really going to pick it up. Now, here's where I said I needed to cover some ground that's way more basic than I expected. But in this day and time... We probably need to say this. So here we go. Are you ready for this? Wow, it's like so quiet. Here we go. The Bible distinguishes between male and female. In the Bible, there are two sexes. And that distinct that distinction is considered in the Bible to be a gender distinction. In other words, there are two sexes, there are two genders. Our world has changed, redefined this concept of male and female and gender distinction. We've walked away from biblical truth. New York City identifies 31 gender distinctions. I won't name them all, but here's a few. Bigendered, female to male, male to female, pangender, two-spirit, Third sex, non-binary transgender, gender gifted, person of transgender experience, androgynous, Facebook offered U.S. users over 50 gender options. And Facebook offered UK users over 70. Then they realized that that's too limiting. And so they let you customize it now. And you basically have unlimited possibilities. You can identify however you want. But the Bible stubbornly claims two, male and female. The problem is we've accommodated our flesh and bowed, the, and bowed to the will of our sin rather than bowing to the word which is the will of our God. And that has gotten us into deep trouble. And when I say these things, I don't say them flippantly because there are a lot of confused people in our world. And I do not want to come across as arrogant or condescending or 
you know, making fun of and that kind of thing because there's a lot of people that are confused and messed up and there's reasons for it. God not only knows where you are but how you got there and there's reasons for it. And so I'm not, I'm not making fun, I'm, I'm not making light, but, but I'm, I'm just telling you we have to bow the knee to the word. It is either all of God's word or it's none of God's word. And the Bible is just stubborn and relentless on the idea of male and female and on celebrating that diversity, celebrating that diversity, not, you know, like ignoring that diversity, uh, but celebrating that diversity, men being men, women being women. Uh, we celebrate that. I think you should dress like a man if you're a man. You should dress like a woman if you're a woman. And I know styles come and go. I get it. I remember when men started wearing scarves in, in a couple of years ago and, and people were hating on the man for wearing a big old man scarf. And, and they're like, oh, it looks like a woman, you know. And then, you know, and I, I got it. I got it. But then, you know, it kind of, then a lot of men started wearing it. It became a man thing. And some of you still won't wear a scarf, but that's fine. I get it. I understand. Uh, just styles come and go. I probably don't need to say anything else about that because I'm trying to think of examples and I'm not getting good ones. But styles come and go. I get it. But basically, men should look like men. Women should look like women. We should celebrate that diversity. We should celebrate that distinction. And so when we're talking about women preachers, it dawned on me, we might need to just deal with the fact that men are men, women are women. So in some circles, there are some people who have some trouble with the idea of women preachers, and there's some reasons for it. We're going to get into that. Acts 2, 14 through 18, Peter stands up with the 12, with the 11, the others, raises his voice, day of Pentecost, these are not drunk as you suppose, it'll come to pass, like Joel said in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, this says it is the will of God for daughters for females who serve God, girls, women, it is the will of God for them to prophesy, period. Now, people will take scriptures. Are you with me? People will take scriptures in the Bible to say otherwise. Like, like where Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, let your women keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive. Oh, man. Ooh, I felt something when I said that. <laughs> There's some braves. There's some brave souls in there. Verse 35, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is shameful for women to speak in church. But what about a woman who doesn't have a husband? In other words, there's context, there's culture, there's contour with every verse. You can't just pick a verse out and say, well, this is what it means. It means that a woman can't say a word. Cassandra, shut your mouth. You can't say nothing in the church house. 
I quote David Guzik a lot, so listen to him. He said, let on this verse, Paul has already assumed the right of women to pray or prophesy publicly, as stated just a few chapters over in 1 Corinthians 11. We looked at that last week. We're going to cover a little bit of that this week. In the ancient world, just as in some modern cultures, women and men sat in different groups at church. Among the Christians in Corinth, there seems to have been the problem of women chattering or disrupting the meetings with questions. Paul is saying, don't disrupt the meeting. Ask your questions at home. In the Jewish synagogues, men and women sat apart, but it was taboo for a woman to chatter or call out to her husband who was sitting a long ways off to talk to him. The Corinthian church may have adopted this same kind of seating arrangement, but with many women from Gentile backgrounds, the church started with a Jewish background. So it would be set up like synagogue. That's the way they went to, quote unquote, church to gather. It was primarily Jews at first. So that's probably how they began organizing. Here you have all these Gentiles who don't get synagogue. And so Paul is trying to teach them how to conduct themselves while they're together. It's disruptive the way you're doing it chattering out and saying, what are they saying, or what does that mean? Al, uh, uh, and then again, Paul assumed the right of women to pray and prophesy under authority. We, 1 Corinthians 11, I already looked at Acts 2 there. The context suggests speak, meaning possibly disruptive speaking. Alan Redpath, another guy, points out that Paul uses the ancient Greek verb laleo, which means to talk, question, argue, profess, or chatter. Redpath says it has nothing to do with prophesy or pray when it comes to being silent in the church. It's not public speaking as such. It's small talk. Small talk. Everybody say small talk. Now another passage that people will talk about and get all hot and bothered about is when Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, incidentally, this is the Timothy who was in the room with Philip the evangelist and his four prophesying daughters. Same Timothy. Paul writes to him later, and, and so here's what he says in 1 Timothy 2.11. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Now, again, I'll quote David Guzik, let a woman learn in silence. This unfortunate translation has led to some believing that it is forbidden for women to even speak in church meetings. Paul uses the same word translated silence in 1 Timothy 2.2, and it's translated peaceable there. The idea is without contention instead of total silence, without contention. In other places in the New Testament, even the writings of Paul, women are specifically mentioned as praying and speaking in the church. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, to learn in silence has the idea of women receiving the teaching of the men, of the men God has chosen to lead in that church with submission instead of with contention. Submission is the principle. To learn in silence describes the application of that principle. Are you with me? Clark expresses this idea, Adam Clark. 
it was lawful for men in public assemblies to ask questions or even interrupt the speaker when there was any matter in his speech which they did not understand. But this liberty was not granted to women in this cultural context. And the word for submission literally means to be under in rank. And this is another subject, but let me throw this to you here because the idea of submission and and, and ranking, it, it has to do with respecting an acknowledged order of authority. It certainly does not mean that men are more spiritual than women. God knows that's not true. Can I get an amen? I thought I'd get one quicker and louder, but you know, it certainly does not mean that men are more spiritual than women or that women are inferior to men. Warren Wiersbe says this, anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. Just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. So these verses in 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy must, they have to jive with the verses in Acts 21 regarding these four prophesying daughters of Philip. We don't even know their names. Who'd have ever thought we'd spent this much time on these four nameless prophesying daughters of Philip the evangelist? But like I said last week, Many who are against women preachers are totally fine with women Sunday school teachers. And a lot of times it's because the man doesn't want to deal with those old kids back there, you know. Let's get the women in there to be our Sunday school teachers. And let's put them in a Sunday school room or in a separate place. Uh, uh, And we're fine with women teaching the Bible, but we don't want them to do it in church or We'll let a woman teach, you know, I'm not saying we as and I'm that guy, but you know what I'm saying, people that think like that. They'll let a woman teach in a church as long as she's teaching just women. Because God knows, I mean, what can a man learn from a woman, right? And, you know, what is a church? We've already dealt with this. A building with a steeple. And if she can teach in Sunday school, but she can't teach men, when does a boy become a man? When's that little Sunday school kid, like all of a sudden, like he's bar mitzvahed, and they're like, oh, you better not listen to your Sunday school teacher anymore, because sister so-and-so is a woman, and you're a man now. You know, like, I'm just saying there's there's some problems. we got to think. problem with most of us, most of church folk, most religious people, I should say, is we quit thinking. We quit thinking through these passages. We have to think through them. 1 Corinthians 11, we looked at that, touch it again, but every woman who prays or prophesies, notice, Guzik is pointing this out, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is one and the same. If her head were shaved, or if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn. If it's shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. It's talking about hair here. A man indeed ought not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was the man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Going back to the order of creation. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the 
angels. And that's where I want to go again. Finishing that up, though, nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman nor woman independent of man. Verse 13, judge among yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor, a shame. If a woman has long hair, it's her glory. So from this text, we conclude that a woman can pray and or prophesy. As a matter of fact, this says that a woman should pray and or prophesy. And it's okay to do that in private, and it's okay to do that in public. He gives some order to it, honoring godly authority. Her head should be covered. He talks about her hair being her covered ring her long hair, uncut hair. He talks about, talk about gender distinction. And he goes back to creation. He talks about godly authority and order. The man was first, then the woman. I don't, and, 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 and that's where I want to pick it up with that angel. This idea, she can she should, she should pray and prophesy in a way that honors her place and authority because of the angels. The angels lost their place. They got out of order, the fallen angels. You know the story, we've opened that. Angels are such a big part of the narrative in Scripture. For us to ignore angels is for us to ignore so much of the Bible. Angels are messengers, angels are helpers, angels are for covenanted people, people of God in a covenant relationship with God. And one of the things we notice about them is this, they're very sensitive to rebellion and they're very sensitive to submission. They saw what happened way back in time past when Lucifer rose up and took a third of the angels with him. It's a fascinating subject. There are several passages that speak of 10,000 times 10,000 and 10,000 of angels. Put numbers together. If numbers mean anything, you're going to have billions and billions of angels that scripture says exist. If a third of them went with Lucifer, it's a lot of angels, a lot of fallen angels. But there's more that are with us than are with them. But there's this sensitivity. And there is this idea, I mentioned it last week, that they are not omniscient. They know things on a need-to-know basis. Either God tells them or they are observant. They watch. The ancients called angels watchers. And what they do is they watch what we do with the word. And we ended last week with this. I'm, I'm going to touch it again. I'm sorry. There's a, a lot of repeating, but we're going to go. We're going to make a lot of progress right here. Genesis 22. 
I want to read it because I want it to be carefully. Just pay attention to this carefully. It came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, the test Abraham faced was the word. Tested him and said to him. One translation says, tested him, saying. The test was, what are you going to do with my word, Abraham? And the word was Abraham. Take now your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This seems to have been a conversation and information was conveyed through this natural realm to the ears of Abraham. And I think it's easy to make the case that not only did Abraham pick this information up, but the spirit realm or the angelic realm, the demonic realm, picked this information up. They heard God say to Abraham, take Isaac, the son of promise, and offer him as a sacrifice. I don't think the angels understood why. I don't think Abraham understood why. But the word didn't require them to understand. The word just required Abraham to do it. As a parent, what do we say? Because I said so. Why, Dad? Because I said so. You know, when you're dealing with a, a little kid, then you, you, I've seen parents do this. I knew one guy in particular that his little boy would, would this is on a podcast now. I have to be careful. Let it fly. It's always dangerous. There's a little boy that was always bad in Sunday school. He was really, really bad. And he would do terrible things, little toddler, terrible things. And all the other parents were always angry because little junior here always did terrible things. And so they would tell the parents, your, your son did terrible things. And I would watch this man say, hey, buddy, come here. Let me tell you, like, this is the way it works. It's wrong to do what you're doing. And let me explain why. And he would have this big old conversation while the kid didn't quite pay attention. And the kid would do it the next week. And then he would have a conversation. Am I telling the truth? You know exactly what I'm And then he would do it the next week. And then he would do it the next week. And what the, what the parent didn't do was like put the fear of God in him, you know. Like you better stop that now. I'm going to beat your tail in, son. You better stop. And then why, dad? Because I said so. You little munchkin. You're an ignorant little munchkin. Do what I told you to do, period. That's how you parent. You want to come find out how to parent? You just come over to my house. I'll tell you how to parent. Because I said so. I don't owe you no dead gum explanation. You can't understand it because I said so. You see this hand? You see, I, I pulled my belt off in the day, you know. I was a vicious parent, wasn't I? Yeah. Uh, But Abraham did not get an explanation. It was just, take your son to a mountain, I show you. 
Abraham has been following the Lord now for over 40 years. He has learned some things about the faithfulness of God and the reasoning of God. I'll tell you something else about Abraham. Abraham knew. He knew. Hebrews 11, you put some other passages with it, and you'll find out Abraham knew. He knew the only shot God had at giving him descendants like he had promised was through that boy Isaac. And it wasn't going to be through Ishmael. God had already told him that. It was going to be through Isaac. His only shot was through Isaac. And Abraham knew, if, if I kill the only shot, God's got to raise him up. He has to. He has to raise him up. If I don't know why he's asking me to do that. It had to be just a, he said, I don't, but he has to raise him up. And Hebrews 11 said that. He knew God would raise him from the dead. In other words, I will do this, God, and I don't understand it, but I know you. I know your word. I know you're faithful to your covenant. And if you promised it, then you will raise him from the dead. And I'll take it a step further. Are you with me? I don't think that Isaac was that uh, bumbling idiot that, that, that let his dad times up and what, we're, what are we doing, you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. I think Abraham conveyed that understanding to his boy Isaac. Isaac would be a type of Christ. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down willingly. And I think that Isaac understood. The old man was saying, Isaac, son, I know it's hard to understand, but hear your father. Here's what's going on. He promised us descendants, and you're a miracle, and you know your own story. We've told it to you many times. Me and your mama, you know, like it was a miracle that you were born. You're the, the fruit of our old age, and we love you so much, but God has asked me, to, and, and I must follow through. And son, if you'll just bear with me, I promise you that we're in for a ride because God's going to raise you from the dead. I think Isaac walked into the, that situation eyes wide open, not ignorant not ignorant, and, 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 and was complicit and laid on that altar and was allowed, to, allowed himself to be tied up. And the old man, you can look at it in Genesis 22, uh, the old man raised a knife and was, was, the Bible says, was coming down to put it in the heart of his son. And I want to pick it up right there, verse 15. Look, look, look at verse look, look, look at verse 12. And he said, do not lay your hand. No. Let me go up a little bit further. Abraham said, my son, my son. Isaac was like, here's fire, here's wood. Where's the lamb? Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering. The two of them went up. Abraham had already told his Servants, we will come back. We're going up to worship and we're coming back. And they come to the place. He bounds, binds his son up. Abraham stretched his hand up, took the knife. But notice verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Now, theologians, different ones have assumed this is a theophany, a theophany. Pre-Christ 
manifestation of God or a pre-incarnate Christ. But I don't, I don't know about you, but that does, that's not what that says. It says, but the angel of the Lord. Angels are all over the Bible. It, this says, the angel of the Lord called to him. Abraham, Abraham, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. How do I know that? Since you have not withheld your son, your only son. Now, Abraham lifts his eyes, looks, and behind him there's a ram caught in the thicket. He takes the ram, offers the burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. Verse 15, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. This is an angel, and he begins to prophesy on behalf of God. Here's the deal. The angel of the Lord watched what Abraham did with that word, watched him, observed. Simple as that, observation, watched him. What's he going to do with that word? And he saw what he did with the word. God already knew what Abraham was going to do. The angel didn't know. The angel watched. He observed. Then he begins to prophesy. Notice the power of what he said, verses 16 through 18. And said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord. He's prophesying. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing I will bless you. Multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And, and, And he said that before. He's never said this before. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed obeyed my voice. Verse 17, he's saying your kids will gain victories they wouldn't have gained otherwise. They will possess the gate of their enemies. It's something that had never been said before. Abraham, like I said, is a Jedi, man. Like he's been following the Lord for 40 years, but he had never heard these words before. These angels, the angels would be released in ways they had never been released before because of this kind of obedience that was extreme. I don't understand it. And I believe this is, like I said, totally typifying Christ Jesus and the will of the Father being done. And the angels are released. The angels were released into Abraham's life in a way that never would have taken place otherwise. That old man, Abraham, wasn't crazy. It just looked that way because he believed the word of God. And sometimes when you obey the word, you look nuts. But you're not nuts. The world is nuts. God is sure. God is true. And Abraham proved that to us. He was an example. He was an example for us. Now, let's look at the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Matthew 4, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterward, he was hungry. Now, the tempter came to him, and he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. And he answered and said, it is written, 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Man, I wish I had time to really break this down. Uh, it, 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 this is so powerful. It, uh, let me just say this quickly. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made bread. The word if there is translated since many, many times in the Bible. It's not, it's not an identity crisis. Jesus didn't have an identity crisis. He was sure who he was. He walked into the synagogue. The Bible says he, he got the scroll and he unfurled it. It would be like us taking our Bible and he flipped through it and he found it. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He told that whole church service that day. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the gospel of the poor. Sent me to heal the broken heart. Blah, blah, blah. I preached on it not too long ago. And then it, the Bible says he closed it, handed it back to the attendant, and he sat down and he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It was a messianic prophecy. Jesus was saying, I am Messiah. Everybody got mad, wanted to kill him. That was the end of that. That was the first sermon he ever preached in church, and they wanted to kill him. I thought I did bad in my first sermon, right? I can only do so good that people would want to kill me. They wanted to kill him. Talking about empty in the room, you know, like took the air out of the room right there. Jesus Christ, first sermon. They wanted to kill him. And uh, barring a miracle, they would have. But he had no identity crisis. So this idea of if you're the son of God, well, it's not an identity crisis. like questioning who he was. I, I could preach that, and that's we question who we are a lot of times. Jesus knew who he was, totally convinced, totally knew who he was. The devil couldn't tempt him to think otherwise. He knew exactly who he was. The temptation was this. Since you're the son of God, take your Godhead powers and turn these stones into bread. Now, he had emptied himself of that. He had humbled himself. Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. He, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but but emptied himself and, and submitted himself and, and walked as a man, a man in a covenant anointed by the Spirit. So he's, he's humbled himself to function as a man anointed. The devil tempts him and says, you've been fasting 40 days. I love it. It says, and afterward he was hungry. He'd been fasting 40 days, and he's hungry. Duh. I, you know, I fast one day, and I'm like, oh, yeah. And the devil, you know, like, since you're the pastor of this church, what else is, you know, like, whatever. And I'm, like, susceptible. I'm, like, I'm hungry, you know. Everything sounds good. Doesn't it sound good after just a couple of meals of fasting? Like, ramen noodles, yes. <laughs> Mr. Goodbar, yes. Cracker Jacks, yes. Fruit Loops, yes. I mean, like, you just, like, oh, just anything sounds good. Since you're, the, since you're the son of God, command these You have the ability as in divinity to take stones and make them into bread. And notice what Jesus says. It is this. Trust me. It is that he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. What's he saying? I will not cheat this experience I am having as a man in covenant. I will not cheat this and whip up some food from stones. 
Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth. I will live by the word, check it out, of my Father. That's how I will live. What? Are you kidding me? He's quoting scripture, Deuteronomy. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. It's 200 feet up in the air. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. It's written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, it's written again. Again, notice, if you're the son of God, or since you're the son of God, that's the term of divinity. Your Godhead powers are in play. Use those. It's written. He's given his angels charge over you. They'll bear you up lest you trip over a little rock. And the idea is this. The right people will be there. It's the temple. All the right people will see what's going on, and they'll, they'll applaud you. And he says, again, it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And what he's saying there is you're not tempting. He's not saying you're not supposed to tempt me. He's saying it is presumptuous for me to take that scripture in the Psalms, Psalm 91, and jump off of a 200-foot building. It's like saying he's given his angels charge over me. So I'm going to drive westbound in the eastbound lane of I-10. Thank you, Jesus. Hashtag favor, right? That's presumptuous. That's foolish. That's what he's saying. It's written. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And the devil took him up to an exceeding high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Now, this was cut to the chase. Just bow down and give me your worship. You know, the first Adam did that for me. Now you do it. I'll give you everything. The idea is this. This was a temptation. This was a temptation. In other words, he could deliver. Uh, the other writing of this particular temptation says that they've all been given to me and to whomever I give them to. This is a legal transaction. I can give it away. Bow the knee and watch what I do. I know you've come to get all this back that Adam lost. I know I'm the God of this world and you've come to defeat me. But I'll help you out. Bow the knee. I'll give it to you the easy way. And he cuts to the chase. He says, "It is get behind me, Satan. Away with you. It's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Notice this. So he, again, submits to the word. It is written. It is written. It is written. I will do what my father says. I will do what the word says. And the devil left him. So that angelic world there, the devil, the bad side, leaves. And behold, what? Angels came and ministered to him. They were released into his life because he lived a life of submission to the word. Just like Abraham, the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, the angel of the Lord. Here, angels come as he is submitted to the word of God and they ministered to him. And he returned, the Bible says, in the power of the spirit and started his ministry, turned water into wine right after this. Boom. Everywhere he went, he had angels ascending and descending on him. He was the house of God, man. But he was living a life in submission, and he was living under an open heaven as a result of that. And that's not the only time this happened, Luke 22. And throughout his ministry, but Luke 22, he ends it. That's how he starts it. This is how he ends it. 
He was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, so much like Isaac here, but yours be done. Verse 43, what? Then what? An angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. He prayed even more. The angels were released because of Jesus' submission to the word. When I tell you angels and demons are sensitive to what we do with authority, they are very sensitive. Do we submit or do we rebel? I want to live under an open heaven. We live in such a religious society, such a religious world. I've told you before, I'm just so sick of it. Um, I don't know how to untangle myself from uh, even my own religion stuff. I'm just being honest with you. But I want I want a move of God. If there are angels that are assigned to me and to my family and to my home and to our church, I want them involved. I want them guarding this place. I want them shoulder to shoulder around this house. And, and when we lay hands on the sick, we're not alone, but there is an angel there with me. And, and do you know what I'm saying? Like it, Because I believe, I believe the Bible. I believe the word and I believe that the, the angelic realm is open to when uh, uh, we are submitted to the word of God. Does that make sense? On the other hand, I don't want the demonic world open to me because I'm rebellious and I've got an attitude and I'm religious and, and I'm blinded because of the God of this world blinding me from the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want that. But I want to be, be walking as one with my Jesus, man, and, and the angels of the Lord going with me. I want this to be like the body of Christ was 2,000 years ago. And I'm not trying to be presumptuous like nobody else is, and we're the only ones got it in town. I can't speak for everybody else. I've been called a pastor at this church, and I want in this church there to be an angelic visitation. And I don't know how to make that, you know, like any... <laughs> less weird sounding than it is but I mean we're, we're already in this right you might as well get the whole enchilada I mean you say you believe in God and you think Jesus is real and all that if we're going to take the Bible let's not piecemeal it let's just take the whole thing and if there's any, billions of angels on my side I want to walk with them and I want them with their, their heads held high and saying, that's a man of God. That's a man of the word. We are free to function and operate and help that one because he walks in the covenant of the king. He's a fellow servant with us. Does that make sense? Instead of just, he does good works. Yay. But he's not submitted to God. He does nice things for people, but he's got so many, our hands are tied. Does that make sense? Well, there you go. Having said all of that, the idea is this. <laughs> Women can and should speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, both in private and in public, 
And they should live lives that make this activity not shameful but God-honoring like the four daughters of Philip the evangelist. So we did all that to say that about women preachers. I could say everything applies on the male side, right? Just because you're a man doesn't mean, well, I'm good. I can get away with anything. No, you can't. Like, I want to walk in submission. I want to honor authority. I want to be covered. I want to be submitted. I want to be humble before the Lord. Does that make sense? And when I say covered, I'm not dealing with the 1 Corinthians 11 per se, as in uh, the, the hair covering thing. I want to be, because it says a man should pray with his head uncovered. But I mean, like, I want to walk with a godly uh, uh, he, uh, 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 covering of people that speak into my life, people I'm submitted to, people that have laid hands on me and ordained me and say, Donovan, you're off track. Change your ways, son. You're, you're headed down the wrong direction. And I can say, in Jesus' name, I'll receive that as a, as a word from God because we all need that. Okay. Oh, it's 816. My goodness, stand with me right now. Let me read these and I'll conclude with this. Acts 21.10. We stayed there many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet and said, gives us show and tell this illustration. Thus says the Holy Spirit, so shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from the place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying the will of the Lord be done. This is fascinating to me. Agabus is a certain prophet. We've seen certain quite a bit. Apparently, he was known as a prophet, the same way that Philip's daughters were known as prophets. But they didn't prophesy concerning Paul's Jerusalem experiences. The Spirit didn't move on them to do that, like Agabus. The same Agabus is the guy who had been in Antioch 15 years earlier and prophesied a famine in Jerusalem. I think it's pretty cool that 15 years later he's still chugging along. Still prophesying, probably called an old prophet of doom, old Agabus. He's so negative. I don't like his ministry. He's so negative. He's always prophesying bad stuff. Prophesied that famine. Prophesied old Paul's going to get bound up and die, prophet of doom. But he was true to what he heard from the Spirit. I love that. He didn't pull any punches and say, well, you know, I hate to tell you. He just said it like it was, illustrated as best he could. And, and it's pretty cool. It says that they realized this was the will of God. Paul going to Jerusalem and suffering was going to be the will of God. And Paul was like, I'm ready for this. So anyhow, even though you have prophecies saying, don't go there because bad things await for you, we knew from the very beginning of the story the will of God was for Paul to go there. So these prophets are picking up a vibe in the spirit. Danger is there. And so you have this amalgamation, this mixing of their will, trying to figure out God's will. Don't go 
There's danger there. They're going to bind you up and turn you over to the Gentiles. Don't go, don't go, don't go. And when he says, no, no, this, I, I know it's the right thing for me to go. And I'm willing not only to suffer but to even die. And then it says the whole group said, well, the will of the Lord be done. We'll let you go. There's a lot of death in what we looked at tonight. Isaac, God's saying, kill him. Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Paul, not my will, but yours be done. I'm willing to go, Lord. I'm willing to go. Really, it just testifies to the power of a man or a woman who takes God's word and says, I'm not going to buffet this. I'm going to take it, jot, line, line upon line, precept upon precept. I'm going to bow the knee to it. What I thought it meant, I'm willing to push it away if it's wrong. What I didn't think it meant, if it really meant that, I'll absorb that, assimilate my life to that. You know what I'm saying? It's this whole bow the knee, man. People say, Jesus is Lord. What does that really mean? Jesus is the word, man. Like, bow the knee to the word. Amen. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the amazing story of your love. It's what infected us to begin with, God. We were blown away. We were overcome. We were overwhelmed by the love of our Heavenly Father. And, God, you, you arrested us, got our attention. And, God, some of us has, have walked with you for just a few months, some have walked with you for 40 years, like Abraham. But God, there are tests that come to us. Not, Lord, not, not tests like we sometimes think, but tests that come from the word. New ways of seeing that word, things we never saw before coming alive to us. And it's a test, Lord, from you. What will I do with your word? And I pray that you'd help us to all become aware. There's angels watching. There's a spirit realm aware. And who knows the impact that my life may have, no matter if I'm young or middle-aged or older, if I just bow the knee. God, it could change the atmosphere. It could change a generation. It could change a generation coming along behind me. It could it could change everything when I just bow the knee and say, I'm willing to make that change, God. Can you lift your hands to him right now and just surrender everything you got? We prayed that Monday night in prayer. I surrender all, all to thee. I surrender. I surrender everything, Lord Jesus. You're the king of my life, God.